Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this your word that it may nourish us today, throughout our life and beyond. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, amen. Reading from the book of Psalms. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. This is the word of the Lord. Our second lectionary reading this morning is Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And I'll read from the Common English Bible translation. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right, and so he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road, and went on his way. 
Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Who are our neighbors? Should we add a citizenship question to the U.S. Census? Are the people facing the threat of deportation with nationwide ICE raids that have already begun this morning our neighbors? These hard questions probe the depths of what we believe about the commandments at the very heart of our faith, to love God with all we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Are the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world also our neighbors? If we want to engage the well-trod parable of the Good Samaritan, we need to be willing to ask these types of uncomfortable questions. Who is my neighbor? The legal expert in today's story asks. It's an important question, and yet Luke makes sure that we know that this man is up to no good. And it's not just because lawyers in this particular gospel are always looking for loopholes in entertaining ways, like first century versions of Saul Goodman from the Netflix series Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. He was no Matlock. He was no Atticus Finch. His response to Jesus' question about what the law of Moses commands is factually spot on, and yet he has missed the mark. He seems more intent on being right than on being loving, more focused on his own justification than on God's justice, in which grace is a gift we cannot earn. And so the story suggests that cultivating this gift of grace through faithful living may just require more of us than we expect, or maybe sometimes more than we're willing to give. Whether we're new to church or we've heard countless sermons about the so-called parable of the Good Samaritan, each of us likely comes to it with a fairly cemented idea about what a Good Samaritan is. First, the term has become synonymous with do-gooder. Consider the many hospitals and charitable organizations and even a law named for this neighborly Samaritan designed to protect people who provide care to strangers in need. On the whole, this isn't a bad thing as the story does remind us that love and neighborliness must live in our enacted faith and not only in our good intentions. Second, if we're familiar with how this story is often preached, we may expect to hear interpretations that paint the Samaritan as a positive foil to the priest and the Levite. These characters are too often portrayed as representing a misunderstood Judaism one that is bound up by an insider's only mentality in an obsession with ritual purity. 
my New Testament professor, Dr. A.J. Levine, who happens to be Jewish, has helpfully challenged such readings of this parable. And her teaching and writing shape my understanding of the story today. In addition to highlighting the emphasis in Leviticus on caring for the stranger, Levine points out that the details in the parable itself let us know that purity wasn't the issue. For example, the priest was not going up to Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple was located at that time, but instead going down and away from the temple. And so it would not have mattered if he had touched a corpse and needed to abstain from leading rituals for a time. Not to mention that the man wasn't dead, but half dead. In Jewish law, saving a life takes precedence even over observing the Sabbath. So the issue was that these two characters were more concerned with their own affairs or maybe even their own safety along this dangerous stretch of road than they were with the well-being of the man who lay in the ditch. Their self-interest was in contrast rather than in keeping with their faith. And Jesus' audience would have known that. Even so, the parable took them by surprise, turning their expectations on their heads. So humor me for just a moment. I'm going to say a couple words, and I invite you to fill in the third word aloud in unison. Are you ready? Thank you. Sun, moon, and stars. And with the 4th of July still not that far in the past, red, white, and blue. Exactly. So in this story, we have a grouping of three passers-by, and Levine describes the central shock of the parable like this, quote, Mention a priest and a Levite, and anyone who knows anything about Judaism will know that the third person is an Israelite. The audience, surprised at this lack of compassion, would have presumed both that the third person would be an Israelite and that he would have helped. However, Jesus is telling a parable, and parables never go the way one expects. Instead of the anticipated Israelite, the person who stops to help is a Samaritan. And so in modern times, this would be like going from Larry and Mo to Osama bin Laden. <laughs> Why would the idea of a compassionate Samaritan have been so subversive? At the time, the Samaritans and the Jewish people were embroiled in a long simmering conflict mentioned many times in scripture, even though its historical roots are still unknown. Second Kings suggests that the mutual animosity came from foreigners' forced migration into what had been Israel's northern kingdom after they were conquered by the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE. Suffice it to say that the hatred went way back, and it continued into Jesus' time, with both Jews and Samaritans claiming to worship the God of the ancient Hebrews, but having separate scriptures and separate temples. Earlier in this gospel, Luke tells us that the Samaritans are the ones who turned Jesus away because his face was set toward Jerusalem, the site of the Jewish temple. Depending on who you are, you might now call the area that used to be Samaria by different names, occupied Palestine, Israel, or the West Bank. So one way to encounter this popular parable now is to imagine a present day analogy from Levine. The man in need of help is an Israeli Jew. The two people who passed them by when they should have helped were a medic from the Israel Defense Forces and a member of the Israel-Palestine Mission Network of the PCUSA. 
But the person who actually shows mercy is a Palestinian Muslim who aligns with Hamas. So with a single identifier, Jesus lets that calculating lawyer, his immediate audience, and today's listening church know that there are no limits to who our neighbors are. Neighbors are defined by what they do rather than by who they are. More challenging still, Jesus relates that there are no limits to whom God calls us to love and that we need to be open to receiving unexpected care, not just from strangers, but even from our enemies. So if not Osama bin Laden or a Hamas member, who would be the equivalent of a Samaritan for you today? From whom would you be reluctant to receive help? These questions stretch us beyond a command that's already hard enough to follow consistently, the call to move from preoccupation with our own self-interest to a deep and active compassion for our neighbors. And they may make you uncomfortable. I can relate. I wonder if I found myself lying by the side of the road and I heard the rumble of a truck stopping and then I looked up to see someone standing over me wearing a red baseball cap that said, <laughs> Ohio State. <laughs> Would my first emotion be relief? I don't know. Even though many of the Psalms our first reading today included make mention of enemies, I'm guilty of preferring a saccharine version of the faith in which being a Christian means I count no one as an enemy. Why can't we all just get along was for years my unspoken mantra. But Jesus is a realist here, and so we can be too. Part of the good news in this story is that we don't have to stick our heads in the sand and deny all the divisions in our society and even within the church. Enemies are part of human existence, Jesus insists. And yet we may not know how God's love is at work in their lives. And they may be the very ones who come to our aid when we are in need. And with this last turn, the parable becomes even harder to accept. Have you ever heard or read this story and then asked yourself, would I have stopped to help? It may be the first thing that comes to mind. And it's a great question. And yet I doubt it comes as naturally to us as individuals or as a church seeking to make God's love visible to consider ourselves in the place of the half-dead man, vulnerable and in need of assistance. So imagine my surprise when I found myself in just such a position, figuratively speaking. Several years ago, when I began the ordination process and met with a presbytery committee in Tennessee to take the first step by becoming an inquirer, a good Samaritan of sorts stepped onto the path and transformed my journey. Picture a committee seated around the table. I know exotic imagery for Presbyterians, right? <laughs> we were discussing the life of the church and my faith journey when the chairperson opened up the floor for questions. And a man representing an evangelical church on the verge of leaving our denomination over issues of LGBTQIA inclusion broke the ice. He clenched his jaw, he took a Bible out of his bag, slammed it on the table, made eye contact with me and said something like, how can you possibly be gay and be an authentic witness for Christ? His no vote came as no shock. 
and our relationship began on the rocks, I will confess. And yet in the few years that followed, we kept getting to know each other better. And we found that we had very little in common. <laughs> I suspect that our votes canceled one another's out, probably with respect to almost every issue in church and civic spheres. In some ways, we probably even represented to each other what we found most troubling and offensive about the world. And yet his understanding of Christ's call to love his neighbors made him soften enough to stay in conversation with me. He eventually became open to the possibility that the same God that he followed was also leading me on a journey toward day into ministry. In the final committee meeting for me to become ready to receive a call in the PCUSA, the call to this church actually, this man was once again the first one to speak. Only this time, with teary eyes, he spoke in support of my ordination. And I now know that I needed his affirmation, maybe even more than that of the people who had been encouraging me all along. When my life was not literally in peril, in peril like the man in our gospel story, my hopes for pursuing congregational ministry had been half dead. The wait for our rules about who could and could not be ordained had been long. The, the wait for those rules to change had been long, and they'd been full of painful interactions. This unlikely ally's willingness to put his assumptions aside, to acknowledge my humanity and show mercy in a way that challenged his own worldview, nurtured those hopes back from the brink and healed much of the hurt I had experienced in church. The congregation I served as an intern in Nashville, and now this church, where you have fully welcomed me as a resident minister in my first call, have loved me back to wholeness, and they have prepared me for the journey ahead. In this sprawling teaching and learning church, with our own share of political divisions, and yes, in the past two years, even communal conflicts, you've shown me how to accept the embrace of a community of belonging. You help me believe that when, especially as a diverse church, we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, we can become a visible sign of God's love in a world where the headlines make it all too clear that enemies abound, kindness is often lacking, and humility is frighteningly scarce. The parable of the Good Samaritan has no shortage of implications for today's most divisive political issues in the Middle East, in our US House of Representatives, and in our houses of worship. It teaches us that we can be real about the polarization that makes collaboration so difficult. We can name the evils of our time, such as white supremacy, xenophobia, violence, environmental crisis, the yawning chasm between the rich and the impoverished, and more. We can even acknowledge that we have enemies. After all, the lawyer in the story recognized that the one who was a neighbor was the one who showed mercy, even though he still couldn't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. But we are called individually and as a church together to be more concerned with being loving than with being right. We are called to focus less on self-justification than on recognizing that everyone we meet was created in God's image and is deeply beloved. 
And so if we let this story rearrange our hearts, we will follow the Samaritan's example of practicing kindness. And we will become more humble and open to the surprise of meeting our true neighbors in the least likely places and faces. Go and do likewise. It's all that easy and it's all that hard. You can do it. We can do it. Amen. We remember that we live this story of Christ and proclaim his love by not running away from the places of hatred, injury, doubt, despair, darkness, and sadness. In those places, we live this story by sowing love, pardon, faith, hope, light, joy, and peace. May we plant seeds for those to come sowing those seeds in love, faith, and nurture, trusting that they are also part of our story and sit with us at the table too. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us so this everyday meal becomes an everlasting feast. May our eating and drinking today unite us with Christ, whose body and blood are given for us. May we know that you live in us and we live in you. May we live in your world, knowing it is indeed yours. Living God, this is our prayer. God of life, you shaped your peace with us when you gathered and formed us from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into us. Jesus, Prince of Peace, you were a vessel of peace in a world that did not welcome you, but you preserved in love in the face of hatred. Help us to do the same. Help us to remember those in Yemen who continue in strife and starvation due to war. Be with those whose doors are being knocked on today by ICE. Be with those who are calling in to the FBI to share their stories of abuse and as they seek justice. Gracious God, we pray for those who in Louisiana who are focused on their, the flooding and the rains there. We pray for all those who are in need of help a need of a stranger to stop, to see, and to help. Holy Spirit, you hold peace within us despite all of our circumstances. You tend to the deepest parts of our inmost being, nurturing peace so that it may grow. Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place today. May our meager offering of bread and cup become our communion with the triune God and one another. May peace and love abound in us and through us. In the certain hope that love overcomes all, we join our voices to pray together, praying as Jesus taught us to pray. Our, our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.